0: From Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries, this is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Because it is the greatest amount of pressure I have ever had in telling an introductory story. Because in Sunday school, I said it was good. And I know who was in Sunday school and I will be paying particular attention to their reactions to see if it is indeed good. The morning sermon, as you can see, the title is, Who Do You Think You Are? Anybody ever been asked that? Yeah, yeah I know. I, I love I love, I love, love how we can talk to each other and respond. I, I really do like that. I also love how nobody wants to raise their hand, but you don't think I can know by the way that you're laughing and not looking. Um, right? I, I do. I see it. We've all been asked that. And here's the truth, and we know this as well. When you're asked the question, who do you think you are? The answer is not, well, I'm Gary. <laughs> you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a, a dad, grandfather. I gotta get that worked in. I'm still still trying to still trying to transition to that. So I'm still trying to get used to it, right? That's not what people are asking that question for. The who do you think you are question means, in my case many times, boy, you overstepped your bounds. <laughs> right? Who do you think you are? Whether it was from a teacher or an employer or <clears throat> mother, um, you, you know, you, you, you did something wrong, right? And, and the amazing thing about it is everyone has been asked that question. No one is immune to that question, right? You know that last week Queen Elizabeth died. Many of you watched the funeral. Seriously, I think it was the greatest amount of people ever to hear the gospel proclaimed at one time. In, in the history of the world. I'm not sure it will ever be repeated. I don't know. That, that was just amazing. But as I was watching the funeral and paying attention to it, one of the things that I loved that they did was they, they pulled people aside who worked in her house to ask them questions. And, and, and usually there was this one reporter that always followed up with this one question. It's like, tell me a story about the queen that we don't know. And I always thought that was amazing because you, you would hear these these great stories. And, and one story that wasn't related in that interview, but was related in uh, an article that I read, was one day Queen Elizabeth was talking to her mom, who was the queen mother. And apparently the conversation became terse. And the queen mother, maybe a little bit more loudly than she should have, looked at Queen Elizabeth and said, Who do you think you are? Now, Queen Elizabeth, if you watched any of the stories, you, you you probably picked up, she has a sharp and quick British sense of humor. The story is told that she casually and calmly and quietly looked at her mom and said, the queen, mummy, the queen. <laughs> now, I find that interesting because she was the queen, and it, it made me think, well, what does the queen mom, what does, what, how does that work, I, you, you know? But the queen (laughs) even got asked that question. Well, you know, and she has a pretty good list of who she is, right? We've all been asked that. We've all overstepped our bounds. We've all done something where the people around us stepped back and thought, who do you think you are? When we come to John chapter 5, and I want you to start, I want you to look down in verse 17. Verse 17 says, But Jesus answered them, which means a question was asked. Now, the problem is we don't have the question. The question is not recorded in Scripture. However, looking at everything that has happened up until John 5, right? John chapter 2, Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. John chapter 3, he has this conversation with Nicodemus, the religious ruler of the day, explaining how to be born again. John chapter 4, he's having this extended dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 5, he heals the lame man, and he heals the lame man on the Sabbath. It is easy to think the question that is not recorded, but the question that was asked of Jesus is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're doing all this. We don't know who you are. You haven't been to the right schools. You haven't studied under the right rabbis. You haven't done the right things. You're not old enough. Who do you think you are? Well, when we come to John 5 and we read verse 19 and the rest of the chapter, it reads like Jesus is answering the question, I will tell you who I am. You've asked, I'm going to tell you. So let's read his answer in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, all the way down to the rest of the chapter. So Jesus said to him, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who, will, who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me But if you do not believe his writings, how Will you believe my words? When we read those verses this morning, and and, and we go through that section, I think this is maybe an overlooked section in the Gospel of John. There's no miracles, right? There's there's no healing. There's, There's nothing that we would label amazing that happens in those verses. But we can't overlook the answer. Because in it, Jesus presents clearly who he is. As one person wrote, quote, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority and proofs of his messiahship. Truncating that quote, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find Jesus saying so clearly, I am Lord. Here, let me present to you and lay it out for you so that you will understand. And he does this in two ways that we're going to look at this morning. The first way is his relationship with his Father. Jesus says that my relationship with the Father supports the claim that I am the Messiah. And he starts this in verse 19, where he says, truly, truly. Now, remember, truly, truly is verily, verily, or literally, amen, amen. It is what we say at the end of our prayers, which means I confirm, I assent to what was just prayed. I I agree with it. Jesus coming and saying truly, truly is his way of saying, look, what I'm about to say is really important. You need to pay attention. And it's really unique because rabbis at this time did not do that. They wouldn't put the amen in the front. They always put it at the end. And they would never put it two together because that would ascribe to them too much authority. So here is Jesus, again, contravening all norms and saying, look, pay attention. I have the authority to do this. I have the authority. Because I am Lord. How am I Lord? He says, I am Lord because I have a unique relationship with the Father that no one else does. The Father and I, we are unified in in mission and works and, and purpose. We are in perfect accord with one another. That's what he says. He sees what the Father is doing. Whatever the Father does, he does. Jesus is saying, me and the Father, perfect relationship." And then Jesus, as he says that, he, 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 he drives his point home. It's like, that's the topic sentence. And then he gives us supporting sentences, right? And you can see that in verse 19, 20, 21 and 22, where he starts the sentences with four. He's like, all right, this is a, me and the father have this unique relationship where we're acting in perfect relationship. Y'all don't. Now let me explain what that means. He says, look, he says the first thing he says, look, I exercise authority. I have this relationship with the Father to such a great extent that that I exercise the authority that the Father has. I have the ability to do that. Now, there's a really interesting tension in that statement because he says, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus is saying, look, I perfectly submit to the authority of, of the Father, which is by definition... the the perfect relationship with the son. It's the perfect sonship. So Jesus is not acting independently, right? So whatever Jesus does, talk to Nicodemus, cleans the temple, change the water to wine, uh, heal the lame man. He is not acting outside of the will of the father. He is doing exactly what the father does. And because of that, He has that authority. He he is acting then. He's telling them, with no less than the authority of God. Hey, look, I'm I'm the Lord because I have the same authority that God the Father does. He goes on and says, look, I'm the Lord because I exhibit love just like God the Father does. Right? When you look in verse 20, it says the father loves the son and shows him all that himself is doing. Right. This is how the relationship between the father and the son is described as as love. The father loves the son and likewise the son loves the father. And when you hear that, you may immediately think, well, what does that have to do with us? It seems to be describing the relationship in, the twi- in between the, uh, the persons of the Trinity. It has everything to do with us. It has absolutely everything to do with us. Because I got news for you. God exhibiting his love to us, Jesus exhibiting his love to us has nothing to do with who you are. I, 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 know, I, I know you think the universe revolves around you. Your mom and dad told you you are the greatest thing ever. God's got your picture on his refrigerator. Pop, that was your bubble. um. It's greater than that, because we have nothing that we can bring to God. But God loves us, and he loves us based on the reciprocal relationship between the love of the Father and the love of the Son. And and this is how it works, right? The love of the Son for the Father is demonstrated by the Son carrying out the will of the Father, right? And so when we think about that, The specific will of the Father that Jesus came was to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins, right? Jesus perfectly loves the Father in submitting to the authority of the Father and going to the cross. The Father loves the Son so much that when he looks down at the cross and sees Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins, he loves the Son so much that he accepts the Son's sacrifice to cover our sins. Right? And when we think about that, John three sixteen just echoes in our ears, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it starts with what? For God so loved. And in this perfect love, Jesus exhibits it by going to the cross. In this perfect love, the Father accepts His sacrifice, and it means we get to be saved. It's amazing. And Jesus even points at this, right? Because he says, look, you're going to see greater things. What is the greater thing that he is talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the resurrection on the third day because that's the ultimate sign in John's gospel. He gives us all these signs, but the ultimate sign is the resurrection. Jesus says, you think healing a lame man was something. You wait till I move that stone and walk out of that tomb. You ain't seen nothing yet. I am Lord. But then he says, look, I also give life. I I, I give life. In the Old Testament, it was the Father who gave life. We go back to the creation story, right? God forms us out of the dust of the ground. And what does he do? He bends over and he breathes the breath of life into mankind. Doesn't do that to any animal. But he does that to us. We have life today because God gave it to us. And as John was introducing us to Jesus, he said what? In him is life. We have life because of Christ. Now, when we read that, we go to physical life. And it makes sense. We do. Jesus gives us physical life. But you know by now that John writes and he likes to play with words where there's a meaning, but there's a meaning. Because when he says that he gives us life, and you look in verse 21, he says he raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Well, how can the Son give life to somebody who is already alive? That's because John is playing with that word life. He's talking about spiritual life. We have a spiritual life because Jesus has the authority to give it. He is the one that can call us out of the condemnation that we are already in, right? Again, John 3.17 says that we are already condemned. We don't need to condemn ourselves. We already are. Jesus didn't come to tell us what we already knew. He came to do what we couldn't and save us from that condemnation. He is the one that can give us new life. He is the one that just as God can raise dead bodies to new life, Jesus can raise people who are physically alive but spiritually dead to new spiritual life so that whoever believes in him shall have life when as he says here i give it to whom he will so that he'll have life now he gives us that spiritual life now as soon as we believe in him how can he do that he is lord and then he says lastly about our relationship. He says, God has given me judgment. Jesus judges mankind. You see that in verse 22 again. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that would be shocking. As New Testament believers, we've heard about Jesus standing and presiding as judge our whole life. That doesn't really shock us as much as it would have been to his hearers because they understood that the only judge was the Father. Right? They look at the Old Testament and they see the Father judging faithless Israel. And Jesus says, the Father has given me the authority to judge. And the final judge, he says to them and to us that we will ever stand before is Jesus Christ. We will stand before him and, and, and he will judge us. You go to Revelation 20 and you see that when he opens the books. We're standing before him in judgment. He will judge. Now, Jesus also, while he was on this earth, if you read through the Gospels, you will see he judged while he was on this earth. Right? Do you, have you ever read through the Gospels and noticed how many times that just Jesus' presence, not his speaking, just his presence, calls people around him to feel ashamed and guilty of their sins? Right, I mean, it even happens today. When you read Jesus' words to people or you read Scripture to people, it, that judges them. Right? Jesus is judging even now. Even now. And as he does that, he says... He's given me the judgment. So so now that you know that I have the authority to judge, you need to honor the Son just as you would honor the Father. You would honor the Father who sits in judgment. Now honor the Son as well. So if they refuse to honor the Son, then by extension they're refusing to honor the Father and what they know to be true. And Jesus says, look, you need to honor me because God has given me the authority to judge mankind. Why? Because I am Lord. Do you see how he, as he describes this relationship between the son and the father, it is pointing back to the authority that he has and who he is. That he is the Lord. He has that authority. But he continues. He goes, that's just, that's just one way that demonstrates it. He goes, here's a second way. Let me call some witnesses. And so he calls some witnesses to verify his claim. Now, witnesses are really important, right? Because when you get placed in the witness box, you are placed there and you are testifying that you are no longer a neutral observer, that you have pick sides. You have either... Uh, pick the side for the plaintiff or you've picked the side for the defendant. You're not sitting on the fence, right? You're in one camp or the other. You're a, a witness for the prosecution or a witness for the defense. He says, so I'm going to pick witnesses and I'm going to call witnesses to testify. He says, because I can't bear witness in verse 31 about myself. My testimony is not true. If you are ever in a trial, and I hope that you never are, you can be called, and you can be, you can testify, but you're not an impartial witness, right? You, you know this. You're not impartial. You're you're wanting to, if if you've got a speeding ticket, no, I, I I I didn't do that, right? You're you're not partial, or you are partial, you're not impartial. So your testimony, while important, doesn't establish the veracity of your claim. So Jesus says, "I'm gonna call some witnesses." Now, in the Old Testament, as you know, you had to have at least two, three were better to establish the truthfulness of someone's claim. Well, in this section, Jesus says, I'm not going to give you two. I'm going to give you five. Right? He, he calls this his first witness and he opens with a pretty big salvo. He's like, I'm going to call God the Father. Look in verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me. Now, the other is... Is God the Father? And in verse 37, he talks about the Father's testimony a little bit more. But the Father has, has borne witness to the Son. He says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, but His, His Word is there, and His Word testifies that I am who I claim to be. How does His Word testify? Simply, all of the Old Testament points to Christ. All of the Old Testament directs us to who Jesus is. And now he shows up on the scene and says, all of those prophecies that you've read, that prophet you're looking for that Moses spoke about, the, the, the one to crush the woman from Genesis 3, all of these that you've heard, you're looking for in Scripture the Father has, has, has testified. Because they understood that the Scripture was from the Father. And it is the father then who is ultimately testifying to who Jesus is. And the father says, he is Lord. He then talks about John the Baptist. Doesn't go great detail. We've already discussed John the Baptist. And he says, John came to bear witness to who I am. But he does say something interesting about John in verse uh, 34. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, like, okay, well, why did you call John if you're then you're gonna say his testimonies doesn't seem to be important? Why I'm bring him up? No, his testimony is important. He was divinely sent by God to be the forerunner. What Jesus is saying is, 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 look, who I am as Lord doesn't ultimately depend on man's evaluation of who I am. Because some men, some women are looking at Jesus and, and they don't see that he's Lord. He says, so yes, John had a divine mission to come and say, make way. You know, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the same time, John's testimony doesn't necessarily validate who I am, because even if he didn't, his testimony wasn't here, I am still Lord. However, he came and his testimony is true because it was his testimony that was calling you to repent. It was his voice that if you had heard him, you would have been saved. So that was witness number three. Or excuse me, witness number two. Witness number three is his own works. Look in verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that, of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So now Jesus is looking at his works. He's going, look, how many of you had the authority to cleanse the temple? How many of you, hey, here's, hey, I won't even give you seven water pots or six water pots. I'll just give you a small cup of water, change it to wine. Go ahead, do it. Let me me, me see it happen. Here, I know where there's a whole bunch of other people who are lame down by the pool of Bethsaida. Let's go walk down there, and, and I will tell you, I, I will pick out a guy for you, and I will tell you to go and heal him. You go heal that person. Go ahead. Go, go, go do it. Go perform the miracles that you have seen me do. And you know as well as I that they couldn't do it, because you know as well as I that we can't do it. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm performing these miracles. And John calls them signs because they are signs pointing us to who Jesus is. And he says that these signs are, are the Father's works. Again, notice that. And that's really important. Talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. What Jesus is doing is what the Father has willed for him and told him to do. And Jesus, in perfect obedience, is doing that. And again, we know the the healing of the the lame man and the next chapter is the feeding of the 5,000. But again, we go to the cross. It always points back to the cross because that is the ultimate sign. That is his ultimate work of who he is. And he's saying, you're rejecting the signs and you're rejecting the Father because I'm performing the signs that the Father has given me. Why am I performing these signs? Because I am the Lord. Then in verse 39, he calls Scripture as a witness. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Man, as a religious leader, they stood on the study of Scripture. This is what they did. How many of you... It, it's a good illustration, but... How many of you have heard about the University of New York, Yeshiva University? Anybody heard about them this week? Yeshiva University is a Hebrew university. It is thoroughly religious. Okay, and I don't want to get into the, the legal argument, but I want you to hear the religious aspect. They go to this university, and it is their job to study the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament, for four to six hours a day. That's what they do. That is it. They go and they study and they study and they study and they study. Here Jesus is saying, look, you study the Scriptures. You go and you look for the Scriptures, and if you are paying attention, what you're going to see is that Scriptures direct you to me. But they're not seeing it. I imagine that many of those students at Yeshiva University are not seeing Jesus. The religious leaders of this time, they're not seeing Jesus. It's it's right there, and they're not seeing him. And I think part of it is because as they studied Scripture, they're studying Scripture as as a way to earn their salvation. If I study hard enough, if I know enough, then I will be accepted. Now, here's the startling statement. In this, right? You search the Scriptures, there's eternal life in there, and they bear witness about me, but verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Just the mere study of the Scriptures will not give you life. If you just come to this as an academic textbook and memorize it for facts and and everything, you're going to miss the purpose of Scripture. You're going to miss the fact that it points to Jesus. And, and, and they can't see it. And here Jesus is standing right before them. Again, I just I know they didn't have flashing neon lights back then, but I just imagine, like we, we've seen the cartoons where the flashing neon lights above the person with the air. I just imagine that above Jesus. He's going, I'm right here, and yet you're two feet in front of me. And you can't see it, even though you know the Scriptures and they testify to me. Why? Because I am Lord. But then he calls one more in verse 46 through 47. He calls Moses, right? Do not think that I will accuse you. Now, that's really interesting, right? Earlier, God said or Jesus said he's going to be judge. And here he says, I'm not going to accuse you. So Jesus isn't going to be the prosecuting attorney to them. That's kind of interesting to think about. He says, look, Moses, (laughs) who you have set your hope, he accuses you. I I don't have to accuse you right now. Moses does. Because if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. You know, for them, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament was Moses. And he says, it is your connection to Moses that actually accuses you. And he accuses you. Look, it's in present tense. He accuses you now. He accuses you now because he wrote about me. He was looking forward to me. And you know what? We already know this is true. Right? When Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, you remember what he says to him? You remember what Philip's testimony was? He says, hey, come and see. We have found him of whom Moses in the law wrote. So earlier Moses was testifying to what? The truth that Jesus is Lord. And here Moses stands again testifying, but in an accusatory position saying, you don't believe. You don't believe. He wrote about me. He was pointing to me. And yet you refuse. You know what else is fascinating about Moses accusing them? One of the roles that Moses exhibited as prophet was an advocate between or on behalf of the people to God, right? How many times, paraphrasing, did this conversation happen? God, I'm going to destroy them and wipe them out. Moses, God, you might want to think about that. (laughs) Moses, or, excuse me, God. They just won't listen. They're hard headed, stiff necked. I'm going to leave them in the desert to die. Moses over here. He's going to look really bad on your reputation. You just brought him out of Egypt. You, you know, so Moses is standing in, in, in as an advocate, right? The priesthood isn't quite there just yet, but Moses is standing there as an advocate going, Look, I'm advocating to, you, to the Father on your behalf. And Jesus is fulfilling that same role. He's like, I'm advocating to the Father on your behalf. How? The cross. It's all there. It all goes back to the cross. It all goes back to that He is Lord, and that is why He has the authority to do this. Who do you think you are, Jesus? I think I'm Lord. Who are you? And as as we read that and, and we go back to it, we've got to come back and answer that same question. Right? It's, it's a question that all of us at one time or another we we have to answer. Who, who do we think Jesus is? Who, who is Jesus? Is, is he the Christ, the Son, the living God, completely equal in authority to the Father? Is is he the Lord? Or is he some insane rabbi or insane person that lived 2,000 years ago? Because this is the really interesting part. Even, even non-believers, and I would actually even narrow that down to a little bit to people who claim to be pastors but don't believe in the the works of Jesus and the inspiration of Scripture. Even people like that look back and say Jesus was a historical person. And it's never the person of Jesus they have a problem with. Jesus fully human and, and fully divine. They never have a problem with the humanity of Jesus. They have a problem with the divinity of Jesus. They have a problem with the lordship of Jesus that he is Lord. But it's a question we have to answer. And we have to answer it in light of verse 25 because it has eternal consequences. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. All right, there is a time coming when Jesus, who as Lord and who has all authority, will call the dead out of the graves. And he makes it clear, everyone will hear his voice. Those who did not believe and those who believed. Everyone will hear his voice. And at Jesus saying, Come out, everybody is going to come out. And he says, Look, some of them are going to come out and they're going to come out to the resurrection of judgment. Why? Why would they do that? Because they never see Jesus as Lord. They they refuse to believe. He said some nice things. He had some good one-liners. He's got some teachings that we might ought to emulate. But that was it. And so he says, come out. They come out. They stand before him. The one who is given to judge mankind. He's going to open up the book of life. Their name's not going to be in it. And they are then judged to the resurrection and judgment, to be separated from him from all time. There's another class. Of people who come out and they hear his voice and they come out of the grave, too. But it says they come out into the resurrection of life. How? They believe that Jesus is Lord. They believe that he has sent me to eternal life. And because of that, he does not come into judgment, he says, but it's passed from death to life. We have eternal life because we read the scriptures, we see the signs and we go, hey, Jesus is Lord. And then just like it says in Romans 10, 9, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are saved. So that when Jesus calls us out of the grave, we are raised to everlasting life. But it has one more implication. The first is we've got to recognize that he is Lord for our eternal salvation. But then there's another implication for believers. And the implication is this: He is Lord of your life. Every aspect, every place, everything that you do, every thought is to be taken captive to the Lord. All right? You go to John chapter 20. After the resurrection, Thomas looks at him and goes, "My Lord and my God. He's Lord." And as believers, we're here because we recognize that He is Lord of our salvation and we are saved. But I think as believers, sometimes we neglect the fact that He is Lord of our lives here and now. And we need to act accordingly. Because if He is Lord of our lives, then we're going to follow Him, we're going to obey Him, we're going to be obedient to His commands, we're going to be obedient to His teachings. And we're going to live like the people who have been called out of darkness into light that we are proclaimed and announced and told that we are. Who does Jesus think he is? He is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the universe, and the Lord over each and every believer. That's who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the universe, and the Lord over each and every believer. That's who he is. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.